Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Today, we welcome Angela Morgan Summers, a young and inspiring content creator and the author of Do Bitcoin, The Future of Money and What You Need to Know. In this episode, we have a packed conversation. We start with Angelo's background and his near-death experience, and then we talk about his book. We discuss the necessity of including crypto in the Bitcoin discourse, free speech, and what society will look like during hyper-Bitcoinization. If you're looking for some great book recommendations, a touch of praxeology, and even a Harry Potter reference, stay tuned. But before we dive into all this, a reminder that the best way you can support the show is by streaming us some sats or sending us a boost via a value-for-value podcasting app like Fountain. If you get value from the show, consider sending some value back our way. Each week, we'll thank the top boosts with a shout-out in the show. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. We also want to thank the sponsors of today's show, the Orange Bell app and Wasabi Wallet. You can find information about them in the show notes, and we'll talk a little more about them later. I'll also mention that the show is produced by Consensus Network, Bitcoin-only publishing house and hub for Bitcoin content like this show. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome, Angela Morgan Summers. It's good to be here, guys. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So you you wrote a book called Do Bitcoin, which seems to be a part of a a series of Do Things books. So tell us a a bit more about that and about your your book in particular. Yeah, so um, you're right. It's it's the Do series. So the um the publishers are they the Do lectures who do like TED talks type events. They have a um, publishing company called the Do Book Publishing Companies. They have this series of books. And I, and I knew them because I gave a talk at one of their events a while ago, and they offered to their uh, speakers sometimes whether or not they wanted to go and write a book. And they offered it to me a while back when I was at like towards like the beginning stages of my learning in the, uh, the whole Bitcoin world. So I was kind of still coming to grips with it. I didn't want to end up writing a book because it luckily as well, because it would have ended up being about crypto at that point in time. I wasn't confident enough in my understanding. But yeah, a couple of years ago in 2021, I was like, hey, is that book offer from a few years ago still on the line? If it is, you know, I'd love to give it a crack and it'll give me a, an opportunity to try and sort of formulate my thoughts and opinions into like a structured premise to conclusion fashion. And it was an interesting challenge because the, the series, they have a, a bunch of books that are all sort of the same size, roughly 20,000 words. So you've got to try and basically convince newbies why bitcoin is important in 20,000 words which isn't actually a lot especially when you're trying to build the context around bitcoin and exactly you know defining the solution rather than just explaining uh, or defining the problem rather than just explaining the solution so the actual explanation of the solution bitcoin's protocol and blockchain stuff ends up being sort of condensed as much as possible to like one or two chapters and then like the majority of it is just trying to go over the problem and bring into question people's understandings of money and sort of question the axioms of their thinking in that, in that realm. So 
it was a good challenge and it definitely, I learned a lot more doing the writing than, than learning because you, you find the holes in your own argument and, and stuff like that quite quickly when you, when you go to actually write it out in words. So yeah, it was really good to sort of refine everything I learned over the years and, and hopefully it's a good way for people to, it's aimed at newbies and people that don't have a, a big, strong base of understanding around Bitcoin and everything like that so far. And the idea is that all too often people in Bitcoin, I found when I was learning, they tend to just use words that are empty to the listener. So they'll, they'll talk about mining and then in their explanation of mining, they'll mention proof of work. And then when they mention, when you go to learn about proof of work, they're talking about mining again and that the actual definitions are never sort of built from the ground up or they're never utilizing words that host mental models that people are familiar with. So I tried to write the book by utilizing mental models that people have already formulated over life because it's first Bitcoin's very first principle. So the theory was I should be able to take first principles models and first principles understandings of that people have about the world and then explain Bitcoin without really mentioning any of the, the jargon until, until the later stages. So yeah. Yeah, uh, explaining something to someone else or teaching a subject is the, in my experience, by far the best, best way of getting to actually understand it yourself, because you're sort of forced, forced into this mode of first principle thinking, which is crucial in understanding anything really. So, so uh, that's really good. I, I can see in the description of the book on Amazon, the description says nothing is complicated. Some things are just harder to explain. The world of digital money might feel like the Wild West, uh, but blockchain, Bitcoin, and alternative cryptocurrencies enter the mainstream. We are going to need to arm ourselves with some knowledge. Do Bitcoin is a concise guide to all things cryptocurrency. Is is this a uh, like is this something the publisher put there, or are are you trying to lure shitcoiners in to 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 get a deeper understanding of what differentiates Bitcoin from the others, or? Why this type of bio? Yeah, that was written by the publishers. I think that is them trying to lure in cryptocurrency people. I don't think they have a full understanding. I had to sort of dig my heels in a little bit to try and, you know, change some of the wording around. But I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that when you are aiming a book like that at newbies, unfortunately at this point in time, that's where the majority of their attention gets misdirected in the beginning stages. And so those are the types of places they're going to probably go to learn. So. I don't think it's the end of the world. I'm not happy really with the description personally, but at the end of the day, people, when they're starting out their journeys of learning, they don't actually know the difference and they don't understand. So to them, they're, a lot of them, unfortunately, consider Bitcoin to be sort of an old and it's like the dinosaur of the whole space. And, you know, there's these new and exciting versions and it's like, they'll liken it to MySpace or, or these things. And, you know, it's the Facebook of, you know, digital currencies and stuff. And when they have that attitude, they're more likely to want to go and learn about the fresh and exciting thing. So I don't think it's a great strategy when you're trying to educate, when you're trying to educate people about Bitcoin to sort of Voldemortify the world of cryptocurrencies and then refuse to mention it at all, because at the end of the day, that's what they're going to be interested in. And so, yeah, if you can sort of smuggle in Bitcoin to that conversation and, you know, if you go through the book, there's a lengthy, a lengthy critique of cryptocurrencies in it and trying to explain to them why, but I don't think it's probably a very fruitful approach to try and say from the beginning, all the other cryptocurrencies are, are shit coins and refuse to sort of 
acknowledge their existence to, you know, the, the beginner, because they're just not going to get it. And that'll probably be perceived to them as you'll be betraying yourself in the exact type of way they expect to see you, which is if they've considered Bitcoin to be the old version of all of the cryptocurrencies and the new ones are more exciting and stuff like that. And you try to teach them about Bitcoin, but the way that you do it is by saying Bitcoin is the only one and cryptocurrencies, they're not, they don't even exist. And, but they're like sort of Voldemortified. Then I think the people that go to, to listen to you are going to hear exactly what they expect from you, which is somebody that's dismissive. But in actual case, Bitcoiners aren't dismissive at all. They've taken on a lot of information and, and passed through it to the best of their ability for a long time before they arrive at their conclusions most of the time. And so. I think, uh, yeah, it's probably quite important if we're trying to emphasize the difference between the two to not Voldemortify. This I, I love that word. I'm, I'm going to shamelessly steal it and use it some in some one of my books. So Voldemortify is, uh, yeah, that's the word of the day. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I get, I get your point. We had a, a discussion about this yesterday during that spaces, which was interesting because like there's, there's this guy trying to get me on to one of the crypto podcasts and I try to like in picking and choosing on what, where to focus your time and energy. It's kind of hard because I certainly understand it in, you know, writing a book about Bitcoin and luring people in like this, but giving giving too much of a platform to people who pretend to be curious, but are really just shitcoin apologists. In my mind, that's another, that's another deal. And like the comparison I make is like, I have no wish to debate a flat earther either, because you have to draw the line somewhere. Like, are there, their arguments so ridiculous that it don't don't need to be addressed at all and like why should you spend your time debating people who are most likely bad actors and are just trying to 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 you know get sponsorship from from these uh, people waving around a bag of shitcoin cash and that's just this is so tricky with the bitcoin space and crypto in general and why why so many prominent Bitcoiners fall from grace at, at, at one point, because that, that bag of, of cash is very tempting for them to, to accept and, and to, to like, to not be principled enough and, and, and give these people that are really opposite to the ethos of Bitcoin time and attention. And, uh, I, I think the, the proper way to, to, to navigate that is just to ignore ignore the bad actors as much as possible. However, there, there is some truth to what you say, since, since all these bad actors have such big marketing budgets and everything, that, that's the reason why people are so confused about this, because there's no marketing budget for Bitcoin at all. It's just us enthusiasts trying to e explain how, how important this is to others. That's what the confusion stems from, because people don't know what, what to believe, and they have a hard time separating signal from noise. So yeah, I, I hope you can lure some of these confused people in and uh, convert them <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah. Question about that though. So, you know, Carl Jung, his idea of the shadow, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I think that oftentimes there's fractals. And I think this is, I don't know if you read The Republic by Plato, but it's what he does really well in that book is sort of draws a, a fractal pattern between the individual and the, well, not the state, but the 
but civilization. And he builds a city, a polis that's basically modeled after the human and tries to draw from that conclusions about how best to act and questions what's just and stuff about an individual. And so I, I believe that there is oftentimes fractal patterns in that sense between how humans and, and how the individual works, because, you know, individual meaning like individual can't divide is kind of a, a statement about the soul. But if you think about it from biology, we are very divisible. We are like made up of trillions of, of cells, correct? So if we are essentially a, a community or a network of cells that are operating to produce the effect of an individual, then humans, billions of humans working in across the globe, I think will create an effect similar to that and to say on the bigger scale. And I think when you have ideas, the idea of the, the shadow is like people often see it as like the good version of you and the bad version of you, but it's actually that if you neglect or repress certain aspects of yourself, Jung said that they're formulating the subconscious. And if you refuse to pay them attention, they will essentially become autonomous actors with their own desires and their own intentions. And they will sabotage and th those parts of you that are repressed will sabotage you in ways that you, that feel unnatural and, and surprising because you sort of by neglecting them, give them autonomy over themselves and they become this unregulated, when you refuse to shine the light on them, they, they, yeah, they lose that regulation from you and they stop being subordinate to you or to the persona. And I think the same happens with ideas on a civilizational scale. This is why, you know, free, free speech is such a big part of the conversation today is that if you push ideas underneath the rug, they'll probably just grow. And you actually just, you stop being able to regulate that, that which you can't see. And so in the Bitcoin and crypto realm, I think, yeah, if it, it's got to be done on a case by case basis for sure, because if you're talking about very technical concepts that people aren't really going to understand, and this is what happened, I think with Bitcoin cash is people didn't really understand the tech at all. A lot of the newbies that got put into Bitcoin cash, they didn't understand the technology. And so when people took, you know, Craig Wright and all of that, and, and when people take these people on board and, and debate them, they are able to basically run their script, which is a script primarily designed to convince. And by platforming them in that sense, even though you may be right, they will still, they're not their job when they're up there on the panel with you or whatever it is, isn't actually to beat you in the debate is to convince the audience. And so, yes, there's definitely something to be said about refusing to platform individuals like that. But I think, again, it, it's very case by case. And that's not to say that people like that and their ideas should be left unchecked and unspoken about and uncriticized. And so, yeah, it's an awkward, it's very awkward. Like you said, it's tricky. It's a tricky situation at the moment to sort of, as a movement really to, to navigate how to best deal with those things that are natural side effects of what's seen to be. I mean, it's the best performing asset in the past decade. There's going to be a lot of scammers that are going to flock to it like a moth to the flame, right? So yes, yeah, it's, it's tricky to find out how to exactly do that, but I don't think boulder mortifying is the best way to go about it. Probably not, but, uh, like ignoring is not boulder mortifying in, in, in my mind, ignoring is just like not buying into, uh, to their narrative. Because if you do, and if you debate them, it's, it's like the, the saying, never pick a fight with a pig, because regardless of the outcome of the fight, the pig wins because the, the, all the pig wants is attention. So that, that's why I, I, uh, have such a hard time. Like when, 
and and you you see this a lot in the shitcoin space. Like people like Richard Hart want to debate Bitcoin maxis all the time because he's very fast paced and his he can talk fast and he can make word salad sound very tasty very quickly. And some of the people that debate him are aren't able to do that at the same speed as him. But that doesn't make him more <laughs> legit. Like so, so just avoiding giving these people attention is, is probably a better way because you're just going to lure people into to something that they're going to regret, uh, regret in the future. Then again, I, I mean, we all have our journeys and uh, some people learn quickly and have a steep learning curve and for others it takes longer. Uh, I just have a problem with giving shitcoiners a platform because it's their behavior is so immoral in, in my mind and so... They're deliberately confusing people about the greatest thing we've we've discovered since like the wheel, and therefore that type of behavior is is so repulsive. Uh, I I I really detest it. So so that's why I very seldom talk to crypto people. It's the Louis Vuitton tracksuits that make Richard Hart legit, um, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Angelo, can you can you give us a little bit more about your background, how you got into Bitcoin and uh, maybe a little bit about just yourself generally? I guess I got into Bitcoin quite young. I was 13 when I first found out about it. It was just off the back of uh, a decision to leave school. So, so yeah, I was quite into parkour and stuff as a sort of escape from from life back when I was in school because I really wasn't very suited to I think to the to the blanket solution that they had defined for education, which is, you know, state education. And I really, I really despised it. I just found actually, well, I'll, I'll go from the beginning. So I was always repulsed essentially by the experience of going to the traditional education. Cause I didn't feel like I was learning much that was useful and I understood, I thought I understood the purpose of a state education institution, which was to educate. But then when you ask questions that are outside of what they expect you to ask, or you ask questions about why exactly you're learning about what you're learning and you get punished for those questions, it really makes you question again, am I there to learn? Because, you know, I think questioning is the predicate of learning. It's sort of, it's what precedes learning in all cases. You first have to ask a question before you can learn an answer. And so when questioning is so heavily frowned upon, it doesn't seem like the actual purpose of that place is to learn. So I found it quite confusing for a long time. I then ended up having a pretty bad accident, a parkour competition where I fucked up my spleen really badly. And that sort of brought mortality quite close to the nose. And the result of that was, you know, me bringing into question a lot of the decisions that I'd made up until then. And at 12, there wasn't many. I hadn't been around that long, but one of the recurring ones was to go to school every day, despite hating it and feeling like it was an unproductive use of time. And so I ended up writing a 22 page document to my family explaining why I didn't want to go to school anymore. And they accepted it. I left school about a year later. Then I found out about Ethereum first, actually on the footnote of a gold bug thing that my dad was reading. And he was like, can you explain this thing to me? I don't get it. I was like, I don't either, but I'll look into it. That led me on to Bitcoin. And then so commenced the rabbit hole, I guess, at quite young. And I've basically been doing that 
since, I mean, I've had two interests since then. It's just been Bitcoin and filmmaking and I've oscillated between the two since then. And now I've sort of combined them. I'm going to start making Bitcoin videos uh, and trying to make some really good Bitcoin content for the internet because it's lacking some in the educational space, I think. So that's my goal, basically. A, a near-death experience can make you grow up fast. I mean, like I've had a, a couple of those, especially on, on boats in, in <laughs> hurricanes where yeah. I thought I was going to die. And it is a very big wake-up call and you, you realize that you're... <laughs> Regardless of where you are in life, your 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 time is limited. But your time on this earth is limited. It's scarce, and you better, and it, therefore it's valuable, and you need to do something with it. Yeah, you sort of get slapped out of whatever you've been lulled into. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I hope you're physically uh, that you physically recovered from all of that at this point. But still, I think having such an experience can. Uh, can propel you forward like like few other things can so it's very interesting you often hear people that have experiences like that so it was the best thing that happened to them which sounds very weird but yeah. you know listening to it but it's it's true it shakes up a lot of things in your psyche and when you shake things up in your psyche they tend to fall back in a slightly different place and it gets rid of all the, the bubbles and the bit the empty bits that weren't sort of filled or, or looked at yeah. entirely beforehand and it's a framing thing as well, because when you bring mortality to the nose, you it's no longer a distant concept that may or may not happen at some point in the future. It becomes a state that you're currently in. And that's true not just when you're having the accident, but you realize that's actually always been the case. You've always been in a state of mortality. And mortality isn't no. something that might happen later down the line. And so realizing that can dwarf a lot of the the worries and concerns that you had prior to that, because it yeah, it provides you, one thing it definitely does provide you with a new perspective on the majority of the problems that you face, I think. I can tell from the way you speak that you write well, <laughs> like for just from what words you pick. It's beautiful. And uh, yeah, fascinating story and a really cool thing that you decided to do that at such an early age. Definitely. So when you wrote this book, ha have you read a lot of other Bitcoin authors and like, uh, other Bitcoin books or like, because you started writing this in, in 2021, you said, uh, so, so, so what, what was your journey before that? So before that it was most of my, so there was the content, which I think of as Bitcoin, how does it work? And then the context of Bitcoin, why do we need it? And the, the context stuff I primarily learned from the internet, as well as a few books, just about just general things like, you know, sapiens and just all of that sort of preliminary stuff that is just zooming out a bit and looking at the bigger picture of things. And then in terms of politics and economics, I went through this uh, book series of books called the Uncle Eric series, which I'd really recommend anybody look at. The, the what series? The un, unco Uncle Eric. Uncle Eric? Yeah. It's by a uh, guy, Richard Mayberry. But yeah, so they were really good and um, they helped me get a basic understanding of economics and politics and how they work together. So that sort of gave me the fundamentals. And then when it came to the current system, it was just mainly learning from online, actually how Bitcoin worked. It was literally just mastering Bitcoin by Antonopoulos. So I went through that for a while and took me some time, but, but yeah, so that was the majority of it. The rest of it was online. There was a couple Bitcoin related books that I went through, like, um, Frisbee's book as well, the Bitcoin, the future of money. Oh yeah. Dominic's book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. So 
I went through that. But yeah, most of my learning was online. I found that when it came to learning about how Bitcoin actually works, I found that for me, at least, it, it was very closely tied to why we needed it. Because as I learned some things about how it worked, I mean, at every level of how Bitcoin is designed is it is taking into account the actions of humans, right? It's, it's trying to essentially prevent against or accommodate for certain human behaviors. And when you learn about how it works, that I think you draw conclusions then from, from that about what exactly it is trying to achieve as a project in, in total. So I found mastering Bitcoin was actually very helpful in both the, the technical side of it, but also like for understanding what it was actually trying to do. But in terms of online Bitcoin content and where the gaps are, yeah, I just found it was, it was, it was hard to find a real, like a solid linear progression from knowing nothing to understanding or to being orange pilled essentially. And that progression was what I was trying to achieve in the book. And it's also what I'm going to try and achieve with video stuff and video content uh, going forwards. What do you think of the episode so far? Let us know in the comments. And now a quick word about our sponsors. First up is the Orange Pill app. Download the Orange Pill app today from the orangepillapp.com. Yeah, Orange Pill app. Woo! Rocket ship, get on board. It's available for iOS and Android. Stack friends and meet like-minded people near you. Connect with your favorite Bitcoiners and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization. We're really excited about the Orange Pill app and its potential to connect Bitcoiners in their local area. Download the Orange Pill app. It's not a dating app, but you can use it for dating. Download now. Next up is Wasabi Wallet. It's a great desktop wallet that has privacy by default and CoinJoin built in. It recycles your UTXOs around so that no one knows who you are after it's done the process. Check out wasabiwallet.io. Make sure that that's the actual link you check out because there are scammers out there who want to steal your Bitcoin. But it works in the background. Tor is built in. And when you send coins to it, the coins you take out are private. So download Wasabi Wallet today. I'm wearing these shades in tribute to Wasabi Wallet because your OPSEC is important. So I'm totally anonymous now, just so you know. Nice. Uh, yeah, you touched on human action there. Did, did you deep dive into praxeology yet? Because like that, that's, that's something you will do eventually uh, if you're interested in Bitcoin, I think. And I can really recommend that falling down that rabbit hole and reading Mises and Rothbard and, and Hoppe and all of that, because it's, it's very enlightening and it makes you see the world in a different light. Um, yeah, that's next on my list. I've, I've gone, I started on um, Anatomy of a State. I don't think you mentioned Rothbard there, did you? Yeah, Anatomy of the State is a great uh, first book to pick up in, in praxeology. The writing style of Rothbard is pretty harsh. So if, if you don't know what you're getting into, you might be scared by his, by the words he uses because he views the state as the enemy. Uh, like there's, there's nothing good about it. And, but he mm -hmm. has a, a very, concise way of explaining why. So yeah, recommend everything written by him, especially a book called The Ethics of Liberty. That was a real eye-opener. It, it made me change my mind on freedom of speech because he points out the, the problem with fighting for freedom of speech and the, the question that freedom of speech proponents forget to ask themselves is freedom of speech where? And then you realize that freedom of speech is only important uh, in a public space and in a just world there wouldn't be uh, a public space anywhere everything would be privately owned 
So if you have absolute property rights, there's there's no reason to have any freedom of speech laws because you get to decide who gets to say what on your property. And if you're a freedom of speech proponent, and if you believe in freedom of thought and freedom of expression and uh, uh, that that is a good thing, you can just allow people to say whatever they want on your property. And that includes a, an internet platform like Twitter or Facebook. We, we think that those are privately owned entities, but that's not entirely true because they're, they're, there is political pressure on them to, to, to censor some stuff. When, when a company gets that big, it inevitably gets influenced by whatever the state and the government tells them to do. So, so uh, the large corporations and the governments are working together. And depending on who you ask, what one is taking over the other. It's either you have the narrative from the left that the corporations are buying the politicians, and you have the, the narrative from the right that the government is taking over the big corp corporations. And I believe the truth is somewhere in between those. You can't separate one from the other. What they're doing is that they're creating artificial monopolies that wouldn't exist in a world where, where everything was voluntary and uh, nothing was coerced. Praxeology, uh, and deep diving into that gives you a, a very clear view of, of, of why this happens and, and, uh, how we should have done things. And basically the, the conclusion is if everything's consensual and voluntary, then you don't have these problems and monopolies cannot be formed. So we've, we've never had true socialism, but we've never had true capitalism either. You're always on a scale between, between the two and Almost socialism uh, killed more people than anything, any other political system in the world, and almost capitalism lifted a lot of people out of poverty. But still, it's very handicapped, and the free market isn't free by any stretch of the uh, imagination. It's always uh, there's always interventionism going on somewhere, and in every every single country, the the government meddles with the free market because they make people pay taxes and they print money. And therefore it's it, what we're living in now is a very bad representation of a, a, uh, an entirely free market. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a category. So the difference between public and private in my head has always been a, a, an issue of categories. And the problem with those categories is they're, they're purely psychological. And so they are essentially in my, in my mind, especially with that specific categorization is categorization is very arbitrary in the sense that I've always seen government as a private business and the difference that separates government from what we traditionally understand as private businesses, such as Twitter, is that the government has a monopoly on violence, which I think was explained. Exactly. <laughs> this is yeah. very Rothbardian. Yeah. I'll probably like him then, but, um, but yeah, so in that sense, it's like, if you were to take a bunch of humans and, uh, just dump them on the planet and allow them to organize themselves. The idea is that if you had a purely private system, then you wouldn't have the monopolies in, in such form because everything would be, uh, there would be no fiat and therefore everything would be a voluntary exchange and voluntary participation in various games or systems that are set up by humans to organize themselves. But I'd say that did happen. We did put a bunch of humans on a floating space rock and what formed was states and those states are called states and they're called public just because we've had to draw a line between them and the rest of companies simply because of the 
the monopoly that they hold on violence and how that changes absolutely everything that they do. Nothing is anymore a action that can be subject to the competitive uh, rebuttals of other members of the same market, but instead it's sort of done by decree because if you disagree, uh, at the end of the line of punishment is always you getting shot. And so therefore there is no, um, you have to draw a line between public and private because of the, the immense power that the public has. But the idea then that if you got rid of the state, that that, that vacuum wouldn't be filled is I think another questionable thing because you, you essentially, the state has worked so well at preserving its own power over the past God knows how long that it's existed practically since the agricultural revolution, right? And so the idea that if you, if you would somehow get rid of it today, there would have to be a lot of voluntary participation to do that in a way that, that wasn't strictly fiat, unless you're talking gunpowder revolution. And now going the gunpowder revolution, what you're saying is, uh, there'll be a period of bloodshed and pain for a while, but then eventually you'll develop the system that you believe is going to be uh, most optimal for humans, which is everything's private. But what's to say after you got to that private part that there wouldn't, I mean, you said that there wouldn't be those monopolies, but what's to say that that's the case? How come the same issue wouldn't form and instead of calling it public, we'd call it public or whatever. It's, they're just words at the end of the day, but they're the actual actions of the people. It's, it's not that like the, I think the people were, were you, you can't take out the fact that, that the people were somewhat complicit in their own domination in a sense over the years, because we didn't have the, the, the tools necessary or the, the ability to, um, prevent ourselves from being domesticated. No, and I, I totally agree with that. And, uh, I, I think there up until Bitcoin, at least there was no tool to sort of enforce is the wrong word, but for forming societies based upon uh, absolute property rights. But I think the, uh, and I think it's true what you say, eventually some entity will capture and, you know, monopolize violence and therefore they can set the rules for ev everyone else and they can uh, come up with all sorts of charades to, to arguably like to defend their, their existence, like democracy or wh whatever they, they choose to call it. But I think the Bitcoin changes the dynamics of violence in a, in a way that hasn't been done before because it makes, it makes the, uh, makes theft and coercion a lot less profitable. So, so if I point a gun to your head, I, I make this point all the time, but if I point a gun to your head and tell you, give me all your Bitcoins. You can choose to give me a fraction of your bitcoins, and I have no way of knowing if you gave me, if you gave me all your bitcoins or just a fraction of them, uh, which changes everything. Uh, because if if this is the case, which it now is, because you cannot know how much another person owns, you there's just no way of knowing. It makes more sense for you to provide me with something of value back uh, than to threaten me. The 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 reward possible reward for you is so much bigger if you interact with me peacefully and voluntarily than if you try to threaten me and coerce me into giving something up. So, so, so I think that's, that's what Bitcoin changes. It changes the dynamics uh, and the profitability of violent behavior on every level of society, which is one of the aspects I find absolutely most, the most being the most powerful aspect of this. Uh, it'll take a couple of generations probably 
but but it will force government to engage in catalactic competition. That is, you know, the good sense of competition and monopolies. If you, if you look at what the uh, the origins of the word monopoly, it's a, it's a Greek word like monopolies, like the, the, it, it, it stems from the monopoly and violence, basically. Like you have a mono city where, where someone rules over others. And if on a free market, that, that, that can, on a totally free market, that couldn't happen because there's always an opportunity for another entrepreneur to come in and create the same, uh, a similar product or a similar service and sell it at a better price. And the, the monopolist cannot just r- raise prices indefinitely because the consumer decides on whether to buy the product or not. So you have this, this good form of competition, but so far, historically, we've never had that. We've never seen that. We've seen more or less of it, but, but never to an absolute. So I think that's what, what Bitcoin does. It enables us to, to get closer to this world that the, the Austrian, uh, school of economics describes as being like an optimal way of running a human society uh, on a voluntary basis uh, so it's so it's not like yes what what you say is true we drop a bunch of humans on a planet and they they start fighting for scarce resources and they can either do that by violent means or voluntary means and some will choose the former some will choose the latter but in the end uh, the the guy with the biggest gun wins uh, that's that's what history has shown but i now think we have a paradigm shift as big as the uh, as gunpowder because after gunpowder the guy with the biggest muscles didn't win but the guy with the 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 the, the most cunning brain did because they could shoot the the guy with the biggest muscles but what bitcoin is is it's not a weapon but rather a shield so it's sort of like the knight's armor which made the the knight impervious to to you know he could Knights could come and pillage a village, uh, and there was nothing the people in the village could do about it because they could try to fight him with pointed sticks, but it didn't matter because he had this armor that it's until gunpowder was invented. But now we have Bitcoin, which is like the ultimate armor because it's it's an intellectual armor. It, it makes you, like I said, it makes theft less profitable. So, so it's a virtual armor and like indirect meta type of armor. And I think it will change the dynamics of violence and therefore the course of humanity. Perhaps it is just a definitional thing as well, but I saw a lot going on on Twitter recently about people sort of annoyed at this framing of Bitcoin as a, as a weapon or something in terms of violence. And you mentioned there that it's more of a shield, but the funny thing is about like, about that is that even if it is just a shield, a shield can't help but be a weapon because if you are a shield, essentially you are wasting the opponent's resources when you are, because by blocking them from being able to hurt you, you're also wasting their resources. And just like how, if you follow the line of fiat decree down to its final endpoint of being at a gun, the final endpoint of wasting another's resources is them starving to death. So I, th- I think there's no escape from the inherent violence in the system. Um, it's, it's sort of embedded in in the actual formulation of planet earth uh and and perhaps it's a for whatever reason that may be but yeah bitcoin i think can't help but be a weapon in that sense because you know it does it does drain the resources of those that try to attack it it's anti-fragile in a sense it's more like a shield that bounces the bullets back towards the person that fires them and so 
the, the good thing about it is that it's on the side of freedom. And, you know, I think that there's a lot that I don't understand about how to best run a civilization, but I think the closer we get towards something for freedom, the happier I am with it. So I'm glad that it's on our side. Yeah, the, the, about the shield that that reflects the bullets. There's another thing to be another angle. Let, let, let me offer you another angle. Quite far into the future, when Bitcoin is a bigger part of the global economy, so so you have a functioning Bitcoin economy in parallel that is bigger than it is now. That will inevitably lead to the costs of production of everything else going down. Like that's one of the things that a, a unhampered free market does. So it reduces the cost of producing stuff. And this will lower the prices of every other good and service, just like the uh, handicapped free market does now for electronics, for instance, which have been dropping in, in price for, for a long time. If, if we can have that effect just to some extent, then even the people that are reluctant to adopt Bitcoin and choose to say no, no coiners, their lives become easier too, because they, Prices drop for them too. Even prices denominated in, in fiat currency will drop because of the lowered cost of production for everything. So I think it, it's true to, to a sense now that Bitcoin is a shield that reflects bullets. But in the long run, I think it's beneficial even to no coiners. Thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, there's the line in the book where I said um, Bitcoin is a riverbank to those for whom the tide isn't kind. And what I was trying to get at is that, you know, it's like a... It's a solid thing. It's not I, I love that sentence. I just have to say that. I love that poetic way of putting, uh, love your words. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I think what I was trying to get at there is that it's not, it's not trying to send you back upstream if the tide's not going in your way. It's literally just a solid. And at any point downstream, it's there always. And you can always go on to it. And it's a sturdy, stable thing. It's not trying to send you back any other way. You're not fighting the stream. You're just opting out of it. And so... For sure, that's the case, like you said right now. But in your example, you said, if we go to a Bitcoin standard, I believe you said, then at that point, everything becomes cheaper in terms of cost of production. And so the people that stayed on a fiat standard, they benefit too. But if they stay no coiners during the transition to a Bitcoin standard, they don't come out of that unscathed because the value of money, which is a product, is the market decides that the product that that person is using, the fiat currencies, is no longer satisfactory and that we want Bitcoin instead. And that transition will an inch, will fuck the supply and demand of fiat so much. That yeah, but what I'm saying is in relative terms that the, the prices of everything else may drop even more than, than the fiat currencies. The, the, I know that they're doing their best to not make this happen by, by printing more money. But, but it may still be the case that, uh, as was the case, the, the, the best example of this I have is electronics. Like, despite all the money printing and the artificial production of money, the price of data storage has been going down rapidly for, for, for decades. So, so there's a, a deflation going on there and it's still functioning very well and they still get cheaper. The cost of production of a, of a gigabyte keeps on dropping. So, so that's why I'm saying I, I, I'm not entirely sure that then again, uh, as I point out in my book, like uh, typing the word dollar 
is it's more costly than printing a new dollar because if you type the word dollar you have to press press six keys d o l l a r and if you if you print more money you just have to press enter so that's <laughs> so, like so that. and, and and things things that are without costs with with no production cost tend to trend to zero over time so like the mp3 for instance or a jpeg like pictures used to have a cost attached to them and sounds as well but right now they're for all intents and purposes free to use and they have no production cost and neither does money but yeah time will tell well, my thesis is that the the prices of everything else may drop even faster than even than fiat currencies that uh, and the only thing that's necessary for that to happen is for the uh, the central banks to to resist the urge to print faster and faster all the time and uh, that's not the way we're going at the moment but that might be true yeah i can see what you mean i was just thinking like you know diff i was just trying to one through my head in like that transition to a bitcoin standard is that if more and more people go on to to use bitcoin then they get to a point where similar to in runaway runaway inflation people are trying to trade their money for goods an accelerated rate, increasing the velocity of the currency and then increasing the effective supply of it because of that as well, which is like the circle, right? The same thing could happen with Bitcoin where it goes up so much that the, as we're moving towards what is resembling more and more a Bitcoin standard, the fiat currencies that used to serve that purpose will inevitably be, flood, be flooding to be out of people's hands and people want to exchange it for Bitcoin. But that means that people with Bitcoin will have to sell it to them. And so they'll have to offer a lot of that fiat in return for the Bitcoin, because if yeah. everybody wants to get their fiat in return for Bitcoin, the fiat is then suddenly the, if this is happening on a, a mass scale in, on the scale that we talk about when we say going to a different reserve currency, then that, that fiat currency is going to be as good as dead. Like it, it will be absolutely crushed. Yeah, it will hyperinflate essentially. Yeah, exactly. So there's no way I think to make such a, like in the, in the closing bit of the book, I say that the, that basically this is the whole thesis of the book as well, is that money is like the fabric of human cooperation and Bitcoin is changing it, which is, I think a good way of explaining the magnitude of that, because cooperation is the basis upon which our entire civilization is built without it, we're, well, we're dead, right? We, we don't have the physical bodies to defend ourselves. The reason we did survive so well is because, you know, we, our brains develop, developed in such a way that allowed us to communicate in complex language and make abstractions across time, which allows us to cooperate and plan and organize on large scales and thus far, thus far. So if you are changing what is the fabric of that, which is money in terms of trade. So uh, I heard somebody say that the language is how you communicate intention and then value is how we communicate action. And so if you have the money aspect of that, which is how we communicate value about actions, when you've actually produced something, it's an actionable thing. When you say you're going to produce something, it's an intention. And so if you are changing the actual fabric of the human action, then you're not going to see, I think that change take place without casualties and you know, it's something to be thought about if, if, if we are like full steam ahead, which we should be about like, this is the way that we need to organize the world. Then we need to probably think about how to do it in the, in the most casualty free way as well. 
as possible as well. But unfortunately, I think beggars can't be choosers in a sense, and we've got to pick our fights because, uh, you know, there's still the chance that, that it doesn't pull off, which is a very scary prospect and a scary idea of the future. So I think first and foremost, it's like, make it work. And then at the same time, you know, there's not, not to be arrogant as well in our uh, underestimation of the, the violence that will be necessary in order to, and when I, when I say violence, I don't mean fiat or force. I mean, just, uh, I, I see violence as more like volatility, just like extreme ups, extreme downs. Yeah, it's, it's civil unrest, basically. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There will be some of that. Yeah. That's, that's, the conversation is fascinating about, about the, um, what the transition will look like. And, uh, I have, uh, I try to have an optimistic view about it because I, I see Bitcoin as a violence remover. Uh, so, so the, therefore I, I hear many other Bitcoiners say that they would prefer a slow transition rather than a fast one, but I'm not entirely sure that I agree because Bitcoin is the removal of violence. So, so what, what these people live out that is that, yeah, that you might have fewer riots and so on and so forth, but you're living in a violent system at the moment. You, you're, you're exposed to violence all the time. Every time you use a fiat currency, you're stealing from your kids without their consent. So, so you're already in a violent world where violence is prevalent and exists everywhere. It's just that you don't see it firsthand. So it's. So in that sense, I hope for a, a, a fast transition to the Bitcoin system because, because it is removing violence. There's, that's what Bitcoin is. It's, it's taking away the violence aspect of every voluntary uh, interaction with other people, which is the same t thing as every trade between people. A, a voluntary interaction is a trade. We're, we're trading right now. We're trading information voluntarily fiat is you're 100 correct about the removal of violence which i think it would be hard for people that haven't gone down the rabbit hole so deep to understand what exactly is meant by that but like yeah. violence isn't just like and it's most fundamental sense as well not just talking about you know the specifics of the petrodollar system and all of that but just thinking on an abstract level you know what is bitcoin it's opt in what is fiat it's by decree and by decree if i say you must do this then that is an act of violence because essentially if you don't commit any physical harm against me or if i don't commit any physical harm against you essentially i'm threatening to do so if you don't agree or conform so um yeah it's it's at its most fundamental sense is a i guess a rebellion against fiat because there is nothing about bitcoin that is decree in any sense at every level of analysis from the code to the community to the participation to the use use of it and how you use it, it is a hundred percent and entirely voluntarily volu voluntary from the ground up and if you had the world operating on a system like that then i think the the cascading effects of that are incalculable like you can't exactly, exactly explain how that manifests itself through things but just like again with the fractal patterns of the of like a human and a and a uh, civilization, like you could say there's this in interesting idea that I had about, um, money, fiat money is kind of like drugs. If, if the human, if, if civilization was a fractal pattern of an individual, of an individual's brain and the individual people were the neurons and 
And maybe money was the dopamine, which incentivizes the actions and directs the actions. It's the motivating neurotransmitter. Then fiat is drugs because you're flooding the brain with dopamine. And so you flood the whole planet with dopamine and it acts really quickly and it gets hyper. It's cracked out on meth and all of a sudden it's really productive and you go great. And it's like, is that productive? Well, sure. Yeah. We've just done, look at how much we've achieved over the past X amount of time, you know? They took loads of meth and I dug a massive hole in my backyard. It was like, no one's ever dug a hole so fast. And it's like, do we need that hole? And also, how's the next few days going to look for you? I absolutely love that analogy because that's exactly what's happening. They're building, like, uh, they're spending so much money on roads. This, uh, the libertarians always take up the, the subject, bring up the subject of roads. But there are so many roads now that cost so much money that lead to some guy in a forest somewhere who in a perfect world would have paid for that road himself and not make everyone else pay for it. And it's just as you said, it's a meth head digging holes in his backyard for no good reason. That's what it is. So, so that's a perfect analogy. I love it. I, I, can, I can tell from the way you think that you, you're already a, an Austrian economist. Like you, you, have, you have the same the same way of framing, like uh, when I wrote the first book I wrote on, on Bitcoin, the first proper book, Sovereignty Through Mathematics, the first chapter in that book is called Everything a Trade, where, where I, I uh, flesh out this idea of, of every interaction being a trade. And that was before I had read any of the Austrian thinkers. So, so when, subsequently, when I, when I read Human Action by Ludwig von Mises, I, was, I, I felt a great sense of pride because I'd come to the same conclusions as these guys. And, and that, that, that reinvigorated me as an, as an author. I thought like, shit, if I, if I can do that, I should, I should write for a living. I should, I should do, which I do, which I now do. So good on you. And, and like, uh, read the Austrians because they're, it's going to make you proud for coming to these conclusions on your own without having read them. That's yeah, that's the yeah. So, so human action is like, I think the audiobook is 38 hours long. So it's a, Big fucking book, but it's yeah. it's like the, for lack of a better word, Bible of praxeology. That that's like the book you should have read about human action and praxeology. That's that's where all these ideas stem from. Yeah, Angela, I think this has been a, a great conversation. It's been awesome to chat with you and to hear your perspectives on these things. A lot of great ideas and really interesting takes on this. And I just want to say, I think our audience is. Uh, balls deep toxic maximalists mostly so your book might not be exactly the thing for them but i encourage our audience to check out your book because maybe this is a useful orange pillar for people that they know so hopefully that's uh that's something that uh people go check out your book do bitcoin and uh similarly i'm looking forward to hearing about everything that you're doing uh, in the future can you tell us just a little bit about about what you're planning to do and what you'd like to do in the medium term future yeah i know are you going to any of the conferences this year for instance i haven't got any scheduled but i'd definitely like to check some of them out um for sure but yeah i haven't got any scheduled i've sort of been planning i was yeah, so I've been planning mainly just this this idea of Bitcoin videos is sort of where 100% of my focus has been recently. And so I think going through this year, that's sort of the, to answer the, the first question, the mid, mid-term, mid to long-term goals is to basically create some 
really good Bitcoin videos that hopefully people can, can, can help to expedite the process of hyper Bitcoinization or however the fuck you say it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, with Bitcoin, obviously it's an idea and ideas generally have to be understood to have any human action behind them. But, uh, to get there is, is awkward because as brilliant as Bitcoin is, it's not the easiest thing to understand. And so if I can help in some way to get more people understanding it, I think it has more, more legs in that sense. And it's definitely something that I think is missing right now. When you look at the, the absolute like value and just the pure genius of the, the total Bitcoin efforts of all the people involved and, and everything that's going on, it's immense. And I think the education side of it to get people understanding it doesn't quite match the, the level of ingenuity going into the actual building and the pushing and stuff, which is great because you want to be building and pushing. But if I can, I'd like to play more of a role in, in creating a good place for people to go to understand it and stuff. Yeah. Well, good. there's about half a dozen things and people that I can think of that we should get you in contact with. Just to just to list off a couple, uh, maybe maybe we should uh, get you in touch with Yoni Appleberg, who makes some fantastic YouTube videos. We've we we yeah. also have a little bit of a network of content creators at Consensus. I, I I don't know if you're aware, but that this is like the uh, produced by Consensus Network, our, our show. So. Uh, we've got a few content creators that uh, we're trying to grow a bit of a network there. So, um, yeah, Emeralize and Emeralize was the yeah. last thing I was going to to suggest. So, do you, do you, you want to tell me a little about a bit about Emeralize? Yeah, Emeralize is like Udemy meets Substack on the Lightning Network. So, so, so the educational platform that um, where you can upload a course and design courses and then accept Lightning payments for for educational content. Uh, uh, and cool. it, yeah, in any, any way you want, you can, you can uh, offer the courses for free. As a libertarian, you're you're often uh, of the opinion that there's no such thing as intellectual property. I would argue that there now is, <laughs> since we have Bitcoin. That's like the first real intellectual property. But uh, but you can accept voluntary payments, or you can uh, you can put up a paywall, or you can do a, any. In any way you like, there's there's so much people, uh, so many people in this space that are willing to help and uh, that can spot talent and and wish to that wish to collaborate with other thinkers. And when you described what your your role in this and like I I could, uh, it was like you were describing me. That's that's what I want to do too. I see all these people that that build stuff and they're amazing. But I th still think there's a lot of education lacking in the space, and that we need to reach out to 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 more people. So so, totally on the same page there. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So I'll just say uh, to to end off this little point is uh, let's talk afterwards and uh, see if we can, can get you connected with some people. Yeah, that'd be really helpful. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Before we wrap up, a quick reminder that the best way to support the show is to stream us some sats or send us a boost via a value for value podcasting app like Fountain. And if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. And now a little bit of information about Consensus Network and what Knut is up to lately.
Hey, Luke, can you tell our listeners a bit more about the Consensus Network, the platform that this show is on and the publishing house that publishes my books? What is the Consensus Network, Luke? Thanks, Knut. The Consensus Network is a Bitcoin-only publisher and translator. In other words, translates Bitcoin books into all sorts of languages. Anyone who's interested in translating a book into their language can get in touch with the Consensus Network to help translate and spread the Bitcoin message throughout the world. We have lots of great examples here. Knut's books are some of the most popular on the site. Check out consensus.network or bitcoinbook.shop to see everything that Consensus has to offer. That's bitcoinbook.shop. Use the affiliate code FOOTPRINT for 10% off. Knut, can you tell us about how to get in touch with you and find out more about your stuff and the things that you're involved in these days? Yeah, sure, Luke. So I'm at Knut Svanum on Twitter. I also have a website, knutsvanum.com, where you can find all of my books. There's a whole bunch of books. These old two ones, Sovereignty Through Mathematics and Independence Reimagined, are being rehashed into one book that's coming out with a foreword by Prince Philip. I'm also making a wine. I'm not making this wine, but this is a wine bottle with a Bitcoin B on it that you can sign up for on my website. And you can also find all sorts of Everything Divided merch if you're interested in that. So uh, that's how you support me. Uh, I think we're at a, a pretty natural spot to end this just in terms of uh, if we take ourselves on to another big topic, I think we'll be here for another hour. And uh, I think maybe that also means that uh, we'll have to have you on again in uh, six months. Definitely. Or yeah. I mean, yeah, this was a, a, a wonderful conversation and I think it will leave the the listeners and the viewers wanting more. So, uh, so that's hopefully the, that's the case. And I'm looking forward to reading your book and talking to you again and seeing you in real life, Angelo. Uh, I enjoyed yes. this a lot. It was really good fun. Yeah, we barely scratched the surface as well. So I, what you said was definitely right. When you get the ball rolling on some of these topics, there's been moments where I've been thinking just that, like when you said about intellectual property and that got me thinking about property and, and big, and I was like, nah, I can't, because if we start that, it's just yeah, going to yeah. It's going to snowball. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it'd be good again. Yeah. Well, the next conversation will be about intellectual property. But thank you very much for coming on and uh, stay for a while afterwards and we'll connect you with some people. Can you can you tell uh, our listeners where they can find you, get in contact and uh, anything else you'd like to plug or direct them to? Yeah, so um, you can find me on Twitter, Twitter at Angelo underscore Summers. Summers is spelled S-O-M-E-R-S. And then... The YouTube channel that I'm going to start posting all the, the Bitcoin content to is uh, called Fast Bitcoins. It's the YouTube channel of the Bitcoin brokerage I work for. So that'll be the, the sort of hub for that content going forwards. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, thanks again for a great conversation. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thank you to Angela Morgan Summers. Much appreciated and uh, great to meet you and get to know you a little bit. And uh, thanks for listening. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Live long and prosper. <laughs>